You're listening to Florida Capital Conversations, a podcast series brought to you by Holland and Knight's Tallahassee office. Each episode of this series will take a look at the many different aspects of state and local government through the lens of our experienced legal professionals. Our hosts, Nate Adams and Mia McCown, have a wide range of Florida governmental experience and offer a seat at the table to everyone who listens to these candid conversations. Welcome to our Florida Capital Conversations podcast series. Today, our subject is HIPAA, and our guests are Shannon Hartsfield and Eddie Williams. My name is Nathan Adams. My co-host is Mia McCowan. We are so pleased that you've joined us today to consider another important issue associated with government affecting the business community and our daily lives as Floridians. There are none better than Shannon and Eddie to kick off our discussion on HIPAA. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Nate. It's exciting to be here. Nothing more fun than talking about HIPAA. It's a much maligned and misunderstood set of regulations. Should be a fascinating discussion, Nate. All right, well, here's the most important question of the day that we're going to discuss, and that is, how do you spell HIPAA? I'll take that one. Nobody spells it right, and that's it, that's the number one way I can tell if you if you know your HIPAA if you spell it with one P and two A's. That is the right answer. And and the very old joke that I tell a lot is the way you remember it is it stands for Health Industry Paying All Attorneys. <laughs> so I'm going to clarify what it really stands for. They may actually think that's what it stands for. All right, all right. Uh, Eddie can clarify. Tell me if I'm wrong. Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act of 1996, and it's actually more than that because it's actually regulations that have been published in various years, um, and and there have been some amendments to the law through the High Tech Act. The High Tech Act of 2009 was amended in January of 2021. So there is never a dull moment when it comes to keeping up with the regulations. And what are they? They're, they're federal privacy and security regulations dealing with data. Now, HIPAA is much more than that. HIPAA... Um, most a lot of what HIPAA is is what it's what is in the name health insurance portability. Before HIPAA was passed in 1996, if you had a pre-existing health condition and you were uh, covered under your employer-sponsored health plan or some insurance product, uh, and you changed jobs, you were in big trouble because coverage for your pre-existing condition was not portable from one plan to another. So HIPAA, I like to think of HIPAA as, as really the first big step toward healthcare reform in the United States. And it fixed that really big problem that was a huge problem for a lot of people. Well, Shannon, for some people that may not be as familiar with HIPAA, I know it's been the subject, as you just mentioned, a lot of legislation, but why do you think we hear so much about it lately? What is the, I mean, how does it interact with the businesses we work for and who we are? How does it impact us? Well, um, HIPAA it actually really affects us a lot less than people think. I mean, people use the, the term HIPAA like they do the term Kleenex or something like that. It's just sort of a generic um, term for some, for something. And, and they, they use it generically to mean all sorts of health privacy. But HIPAA is pretty narrow. Eddie, do you want to talk to us a little bit about um, how narrow HIPAA really is? 
Yeah, that's correct. The term is often thrown around and used by individuals incorrectly. They try to say that, oh, this this is subject to HIPAA and HIPAA really doesn't apply. HIPAA really applies to uh, covered entities and business associates. And within those categories, a covered entity, uh, you have health plans, certain health plans, and then you have a healthcare clearinghouse, which is basically an entity that receives certain data in a standard format or non-standard format and helps facilitate and process that data either into a standard or non-standard format for, again, those covered transactions that Shannon mentioned about earlier, again, the portability of the information. And then also you have the big part, which we're more familiar with, uh, our health care providers who actually transmit protected health information electronically in connection with HIPAA-covered transactions. So if you fit into those categories, then you will be considered a covered entity. The other group is a business associate. And a business associate basically could be an individual or an entity that provides services on behalf of a covered entity, and they need access to the data and have access to the protected health information in order to perform those services. For instance, an example, Holland Knight, and we as attorneys, when we have covered entity clients, either a health plan or a healthcare provider that's subject to HIPAA, and we are providing services on their behalf and we have to have access to the data to provide those legal services, then we are a business associate of that covered entity and we have to enter into under HIPAA what is called a business associate agreement. And so that is the narrow area where, you know, HIPAA applies to those type of entities. So it's not really a broad scope. I mean, you have a lot of entities or individuals in the, those particular categories, but it doesn't apply to all your health information and, and all the circumstances relating to your health information. So like when my dad called my primary care doctor and took it upon himself to switch my appointment because he didn't like the doctor that I was seeing, I told him that it he was in a, he created a HIPAA violation and he told me to take it up with Shannon that he didn't think it applied. Was he right that he's not subject to HIPAA? He, he personally is not subject to HIPAA. I will um, I will reserve judgment on uh, whatever his doc, your doctor may or may not have done. Um, I can think of some ways to defend a doctor who's in that unfortunate situation where family members are having uh, personal <laughs> issues. Because um, HIPAA does allow you to disclose protected health information to friends and family. Um, state law might be a little more stringent in certain circumstances, but there's other ways to, to deal with those those things as well. So um, the reason Eddie and I um, have a job, I guess, is that HIPAA is complicated and uh, it's not always easy to tell when it applies, but it definitely doesn't apply to us as individual humans unless we're doctors or nurses or, or something like that. When you use the word healthcare provider, Eddie, what, who, who are these healthcare providers? Apparently one is a doctor, but who else do you mean by that? It, it could be a hospital, a healthcare clinic, nursing home. So other providers of healthcare, you know, they're in the day-to-day business of providing healthcare services and, you know, they're billing and doing those things and they need the information and they're transmitting the information again, electronically in order to carry out their, you know, their functions of operating as a healthcare provider. And it can also be include things that we don't really think about, like um, a, a medical sales rep. 
who needs to go into an operating room, they're selling medical devices on behalf of a manufacturer and they need to help that doctor in the operating room um, know which medical device to use. So even if they don't even have any kind of medical license, they're just, they're just a sales rep, they could potentially fall under HIPAA's very broad definition of a healthcare provider. And they may not even be subject to HIPAA if they're not uh, transmitting protected health information electronically in connection with claims or other standard transactions. So there's a lot of situations where people can have legitimate access to our health data, but they're not subject to HIPAA at all. Um, it could be a college or a university or a school. If they have a healthcare clinic on site and they are providing services to the public as well as their students, and again, they're transmitting the information electronically, um, you can try to carve out and just isolate that healthcare clinic as the only covered entity and not the overall university as a whole uh, on the HIPAA. They call that a hybrid entity. So basically, you're only identifying that healthcare component as the covered entity where the university or the remainder of the school would not be subject to HIPAA. Now, there are some limitations you would have to abide by. So the school can just freely share information and by, um, back and forth with that particular clinic. So there are definitely some um, guidelines and restrictions that they would have to abide by when they establish themselves as a hybrid entity. I think it sounds like one of the hardest parts of HIPAA is trying to figure out if you have to comply with it, like if you're a covered entity or who it applies to. But let's say once, you know, let's say you get through that rigmarole and you determine that it does apply to you. What do you then have to do? What are your responsibilities? Can I, is there something like a form or something I can just go on the internet and, and work out? What, what are my steps? What do I need to do to make sure I'm in compliance? Eddie and I always get calls about that and, and they say something like, I need to come into compliance with HIPAA by next Wednesday, okay? It, it is, and I just tell them it's a job, it's a chore, it's it's a big job. Um, it's much more than simply um, checking a box. You, you have to do a, a lot of things, including First of all, figuring out what protected health information you get and how where it's stored and how it flows throughout the organization. You have to do an analysis of the potential risks of that data and how you're going to protect it. You have to implement policies and procedures regarding privacy and security. You have to have a privacy official and a security official and maybe a notice of privacy practices and uh, you have to train your workforce. So there's quite a lot to do to come to compliance with HIPAA, for sure, um, whether you're a covered entity or somebody that works for a covered entity as a business associate. Yeah, Shannon and I, in our, in our past, we've definitely come across different clients who, so here's our HIPAA policies and procedures, and they're like 30 pages, or there's a small little binder that they have went out and purchased, and it still have the blanks where you're supposed to fill in the details about what exactly your particular policy is for protecting the information or your security measures and things of that nature. And, and so that's where we, we look at each other and, and then we say, okay, we got a lot of work to do to try to get them to understand that it's a more complex than just buying something off the, the shelf and, and putting your name on and say, okay, here are my policies and procedures. Yeah. And in fact, in my experience, if you have a um, situation in general, whether it's an employment law or, or other areas of law, where you have a manual that you bought for 1995 off the internet um, with a 10% discount and you put it on your 
you know, you put in your bookcase, but you don't really implement it. Typically, that's actually a worse scenario than had you not ever even attempted to comply because now you've got a you've got a binder that says what you're supposed to be doing, and yet you're really not doing it. Have you is that is that true in, in the HIPAA context as well? That definitely happens more often than we'd like to see. And and yeah, there there's sometimes they've got 10 pages of policies. Um, you know, and there are certain circumstances where something is better than nothing. You know, if you have a business associate agreement with a third party, it's better to have something in place, even if it doesn't have every single requirement of HIPAA, than, than to have nothing. But it's it's uh, it's definitely complicated to do everything that HIPAA requires, and and there's not a lot of auditing um, with respect to government audits of HIPAA. But where we're seeing uh, HIPAA issues come up more and more are in transactions, where one company wants to buy another, or one company wants a big loan from another company, and that's where they're asking questions about HIPAA compliance and finding that there are problems potentially. What happens if you don't comply? You said there's not a lot of governmental audits. Are there fines, though? I mean, is there a risk? Obviously, based on what you just said, if you're trying to sell your company, it could prevent a sale from going through, or maybe they do a reduction in cost or something of that nature because you're not in compliance and they've got to do take the effort to do that. So what, what are some of the risks if you're not in compliance? Well, under the provisions of regulations, the Office for Civil Rights, which is the arm of the Federal Department of Health and Human Services, which enforces HIPAA, um, they can impose civil as well as criminal penalties for violations of HIPAA. Now, there are different standards that you would have to adhere to as far as the, when they impose those penalties, you know, whether something was a knowing violation or whether you corrected it in a, in a, you know, 30 days or anything like that, which will weigh into how much a penalty may, they may be imposed. Uh, previously, there were significant penalties and, and that's a relative term. Now they have a little bit more discretion and they're not imposing huge and high million dollar penalties, but they're still significant. There are various penalties for different violations. More recently, the request for access, you're not timely permitting access to an individual to their information or disclosing that information, you know, at their direction. You know, OCR is imposing penalties for that failure to abide by your policies and the guidelines of providing that access. Then you have a major area where you may have a breach and information has been improperly disclosed in violations of the HIPAA uh, rules. And so you can have significant penalties uh, where you have a lot of individuals' information at stake. And so OCR can come in and they can perform an uh, investigation. And Shannon uh, handles a lot of those responses to those inquiries from OCR and assist clients with those. So I'll let her speak about that. Yeah, it, I think um, a lot of the risks with respect to HIPAA aren't so much OCR, but more of the risks if you have a data breach and you're going to have to notify umpteen people that their information was compromised, provide them with credit monitoring. That's where the cost can get up, in, you know, fairly high. And you you could also be subject to class action litigation and things like that for people that feel that they're harmed. But when the Office for Social Rights comes knocking, they're usually going to always ask for your documented HIPAA risk assessment or risk analysis and your risk mitigation plan, as well as your policies and procedures that were in place at the time of the incident and, and your training materials and things like that. And, and it's 
kind of sad sometimes when there is nothing to provide and all you can do is beg forgiveness and try to get things in place quickly. And that's where they call Eddie and me and say, we need something in place right now. So um, when you're audited by the officer civil rights or where there's a complaint investigation, it can go on for months and months sometimes. Uh, one of the new changes that I mentioned to the High Tech Act that was passed in January is that if you can demonstrate that you've had recognized security practices in place for the past 12 months, it could affect um, your audit, like it could reduce the scope of the audit or reduce penalties that could be assessed. Um, something I'm curious about is whether, let's say you're a tech company and you, you, you don't have your HIPAA compliance ducks in a row, but you have implemented a very robust security program that's modeled after NIST or high trust or something like that, could you potentially um, reduce penalties by showing that you have done things with respect to data privacy and security, even if you haven't done all the magical things that HIPAA requires? So uh, I don't know how that would work out, but um, at a minimum, I think it would it, it would probably be helpful um, if you could show that you've done that. So that's something that um, the Office of Social Rights is starting to ask about in its complaint investigations is whether you have implemented recognized security practices. So I hear that we're in the midst of a pandemic and, um, you know, maybe in that context, more, more often than not, we hear HIPAA arise, people saying online that they've been asking about their vaccination status, that's a violation of HIPAA, or there's any number of uh, sort of themes uh, relating to vaccination uh, where this comes up. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of institutions that are involved in vaccination that maybe previously weren't really involved in healthcare. So just give us your your sense on, uh, on, the, on the interaction between HIPAA and, you know, what's going on with respect to vaccinations and the questions associated with that. I think I've heard people say that as they're going into their local grocery store, which here in Florida would be Publix, Trader Joe's, um, whether they're getting on the airport, you hear that, you know, vaccination status and whether they mask or not is a HIPAA violation. Yeah, we get a lot of questions about that. And as Eddie was talking about, HIPAA only applies to covered entities, business associates, and subcontractors. So employers, as employers, are not subject to HIPAA. They might, they might have a health plan that is, but an employer just employing humans and, and asking about their vaccination status is not subject to HIPAA. There may be other privacy laws that apply, and Nate would know better than me about the Americans with Disabilities Act and, and various employee employment-related privacy laws and requirements, but HIPAA itself does not apply to grocery stores. HIPAA doesn't apply to airlines. HIPAA doesn't apply to schools asking about a student's or teacher's vaccination status. Now, HIPAA would apply, Mia, if your dad called your doctor and asked if you were vaccinated and your doctor told him HIPAA does apply to the doctor. So if you're asking a lab or a hospital or a doctor whether someone's vaccinated uh, who's not their employee, then that could potentially implicate HIPAA because you're asking them to disclose patient data. But it doesn't stop you from asking as a, as a citizen. And I can ask my dentist if he's been vaccinated or I can ask my doctor if the nurses have been vaccinated and none of that implicates HIPAA. Um, even if they tell us um, it doesn't implicate HIPAA because HIPAA doesn't apply to them in their role as employers. They may choose not to disclose for whatever other reasons. 
but it's not a HIPAA issue. It might be an issue under something else, but it's it's not HIPAA nine times out of 10. So in all seriousness, like with the grocery stores or the airlines with their consumers, HIPAA does not apply. Now, to the extent, like you mentioned, Holland and Knight, we may have our own health plan if the airline or grocery store has their own health plan, they may have certain responsibilities under that, but not as it relates to their consumer, their customers. Right. And I, and I would just add on the uh, on the HIPAA side, uh, the Federal Department of Health and Human Services, they recognize with in, in trying to deal with the pandemic, um, they, they relax the enforcement rules with respect to certain HIPAA violations because they're, they're con- more concerned about making sure that physicians and, and other institutions are trying to do what they can do to help save lives, get the vaccine out. Um, say, for instance, if you have a community vaccination clinic site set up, um, they're going, they, they have relaxed the rules as far as, you know, providing notices or privacy practice, anything that you will be required to do generally under HIPAA. They've relaxed the enforcement of the rules. Now, they still encourage you to try to do your best to comply if you have individuals coming there and they're providing you with their health information. They want you to protect it, but they're going to exercise discretion at those particular sites as far as in trying to impose any penalties against you. Again, once we get to a certain stage, they'll probably pull that back and say, okay, now it's time for you to, you know, come back into compliance fully. And also their discretion only relates to the particular operations at the site and anything connected to operating that site. Say, for instance, if you have other people at your medical office doing everything else, seeing patients there, you still have to fully comply with HIPAA and the requirements at that medical office. All right. Well, and I appreciate your bringing up the difference between federal and state law. I suspect that sometimes when people use the word HIPAA, they're using it sort of in the sense of any and all confidentiality or, you know, privacy kinds of rules that might apply to healthcare. And it sounds like what you're saying is that, you know, HIPAA is really this specific kind of protection in that area, but you have to look further, you know, potentially at state law, maybe even other federal laws um, in order to really gain a sense as to what your responsibilities are with respect to health information. Is that a fair statement? Definitely. And and I like to tell people, you know, half the battle is just not doing anything with information that somebody wouldn't expect and, and not doing anything that contradicts something you promised about that information. Because we, even if you're not subject to HIPAA, you're, you might be subject to the Federal Trade Commission uh, requirements to abide by your online terms of use and privacy policy and things like that. So I think a good rule of thumb is don't do anything strange with data. Don't try to sell it or something unless you have permission somehow. And, and that's going to be... Uh, very helpful in terms of avoiding problems and keep it keep it safe keep it secure don't let unauthorized people get to it because even if you're not subject to HIPAA that could trigger the Florida Information Protection Act and and other laws and I and I'll also add as Shannon mentioned about state law uh, HIPAA and state law again you have to comply with both and HIPAA only preempt preempt state law if it's more stringent if it provides greater protection. If state law provides greater protection, then you have to comply with state law. But 
the goal is to actually comply to comply with both at the same time. And as Nate, as you may be aware, in the litigation where health records are involved and you have subpoenas and things of that nature, HIPAA may allow for disclosure of those records in a, in a tribunal arena, but state law may have certain procedures that you have to follow in order for those records to be disclosed. And so you would have to follow uh, the state law as well when, you, when you're um, operating in that particular arena in, in courts. All right. Well, I want to thank Shannon and Eddie for this informative and interesting comments on on HIPAA. And I want to thank my co-host, Mia. Thank you for your time today. Thanks, Nate. It's always a pleasure. As we sound off, it is H-I-P-A-A. <laughs> yes. If we didn't teach you anything else, please know that. Please know the correct spelling. Uh, most of all, we want to thank each of you for joining us today. And uh, we hope you'll come back and join us for our next Florida Capital Conversations podcast. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to Florida Capital Conversations. For more information on our Tallahassee office, please visit hklaw.com Tallahassee.